Welcome to Scenario D, the podcast that takes you behind the magic by giving you the facts and a whole lot of feels. I'm Lish, and I'm Curbs. And this week, we're painting with all the colors of the wind as we explore the most beautiful film of the Disney Renaissance, Pocahontas. So listen with your heart, and ideally your ears, too, as we paddle just around the river bend and get to know the film that was meant to be bigger than The Lion King. Okay, everyone. So this episode is going to be a little bit different for us because it is about Pocahontas. And we want to acknowledge that in the past, we have talked about quite a few times, actually, that Pocahontas is a favorite film of ours. And we have always both ranked it very highly in our list of favorite princess movies. That being said, we are aware that it's a very problematic film because of the way that it misrepresents the historical figure of Pocahontas and indigenous cultures in American history. So today we want to acknowledge that when we watched it in the past, we weren't looking at it through that lens. And now that we understand more, we would like to discuss and address this film with these things in mind while still being able to look at its history and its impact on Disney animation. And before any of you come at us in the comments, you know, knives drawn, teeth bared, out for blood because we skipped Aladdin, we did not skip Aladdin. We will have you know that today is actually the anniversary of the date that Pocahontas came out. So not only does it make sense for us to record this episode today, we also know, not feel, know that Aladdin belongs in season two of Scenario D, where we talk about Mm -hmm. the boys. The boys include classic films like Hercules and The Hunchback of Notre Dame and, you all guessed it, Aladdin. So don't come for us. This is our podcast. We're in charge. We're in the driver's seat. It's Pocahontas' release anniversary day, and we're ready to hit the ground running. So, Lish, please, Disney at the time, what are we looking at here? All right, so Disney at the time, we're... About at 1992, when they're starting to, yeah, great year. Um, I was two. You were one. I was one. And uh, they're starting <laughs> to um, think about Pocahontas. That's where that came up. This is a magical time to be at Disney. Mm. We're like really deep into the Renaissance now. But it's also a crazy stressful time to be at Disney. They're producing hit after hit is coming out of Disney animation. Mm-hmm. The like princess movement is, you know, in full swing. Those ladies are leading the charge. Right. Um, but it's also just like film after film. And I think it mm. was starting to be a lot on, you know, a lot of the staff that was working there. Right. The basic idea for Pocahontas uh, came from Michael Gabriel, and he was coming off of The Rescuers Down Under. <laughs> Um, he was another classic, I know. another classic nineties film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a hit, right? That's one of those hits you were talking about. Yes. Oh yeah. Oh yes. He did that one. And then he was very interested in native American culture and wanted to find a way to incorporate that into a major Disney film. Mm-hmm. Disney was also very interested in the Romeo Juliet story. And we're kind of looking at a way to incorporate something of that nature into the princess canon. Same as Little Mermaid. This one was actually brought up at one of their gong shows Ooh, that we talked about. Okay. Where pretty much anybody could pitch a project. They're still, you know, looking for stories and producing a lot of films at this time. So they're still rolling that out. And Michael Gabriel pitched this one and it kind of fit in with with things that they were looking for. So it was greenlit by Katzenberg right away. Katzenberg. I feel like we're going to hear a lot about him in this episode. Am I right? Uh, Yes. Yes, you're right. What a guy. Jeffrey. (laughs) And uh, because they're doing so well, this also like the pressure is on for just like producing a lot of films like we Mm, talked about. And this you know, rolls in again with like VHSs, which were basically like Disney's money printing machine. Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, we all wanted to own all of them. Like it was one of those things where I grew up with only five or six, but my best friends had 20, 30. And like, you would kind of covet Mm -hmm. the ones that you had. And then the ones that you also didn't have, they were like 
currency. And and the vault system was Ooh, like so yeah. well thought out where it's like, oh, you can like only buy this mm-hmm. this year. So like you have to get it. We had like all of them. Like we, it was something we would always get. And we like had all of them at a point. And a couple years ago, my mom, bless her, actually like, I don't know if she gave them away oh, or goodness. sold them. We didn't have a VHS player anymore, so she didn't think it made sense. <laughs> we were obviously devastated. We were like, there oh, goes our childhood. Geez, like, thanks a lot, mom. Heartbroken. And uh, she, that Christmas, <laughs> it was like, this is the best Christmas ever. There was just like, hidden in all of our <gasps> presents, there was just like DVDs oh. of all of like the Disney movies. I don't know how she found some of these. You can't just go to the store and buy these. This is like eBay and like dark circles of the internet. Like, I don't know what she had to do. (laughs) Yeah. Black market. Here we go. Dark web. Well, and especially because VHS had the vault system. So did DVDs. Oh yeah. Like they were not, they were not around forever. See, I think it's funny that you're mentioning that this was only a few years ago. I remember when this happened, we were living together already Mm -hmm. and you were so upset. But what's funny is that I think like, I still have all my Disney VHSs. I am surrounded by them in my office right now. Like Mm -hmm. I can, within arm's reach are like 10 of them. And what I think is so funny is that none of us have a way to play these anymore. Like my parents do, they have a VCR, but I don't have a VCR. And yet it somehow, for some reason is important that we hang on to these things. But does it like work? Like do do those even plug into TVs? Like I don't even. Well, okay, it does. Like. I can use the VCR at my parents' house. And actually like every Christmas we have this taped Mickey Christmas special that's on this VHS that's tale as old as time. It's like, Mm -hmm. you know, crumbling in our hands and yet it still plays. So it does work, but I fully understand where the pressure, like you're talking about how like, you know, VHS means that they need to be making hits so that people will want to buy them because that's just more money in Disney's pocket. I completely understand the pressure that the filmmakers would feel for this because it's now not just like, will people go to see it because it's Disney? It's will they buy it because it's Disney? So it's like an even mm-hmm. bigger. Yeah. And I mean, and with these like one hit and then you make sequels, like there's there's just like mm-hmm. so much like if you get one good one, then you can make three bad ones and people will buy them. Then you can make like all of this merchandise yeah. and people will buy it. Then you can put that them in the Disney life. parks and people mm-hmm. will pay to come and see them. Like there's just like all of this money to be made off of yep. a hit, which is the sort of newer model that that Disney was really going for in the Renaissance. And it was like, Absolutely. you know, a really yep. booming time. So while this was like really, really great <laughs> for, you know, um, people that owned Disney stock at the time, for the people that actually worked there, this was kind of nuts because there's like movie after movie and they all have such a high standard now because Disney's back to the like, it's got to look beautiful. The story's got to be great. Like everything had mm-hmm. to, you know, kind of fit the, the new um, standard that they were working with. So this was like, crazy like this was like crunch after crunch you finish a movie you worked so hard on it and then the next one's right there before you have a chance to catch your breath almost like a conveyor belt yeah seriously and like people are like having heart attacks and like getting divorces like it was like yeah it was it was a rough a rough time can you imagine sorry just but can you imagine going to your doctor and being like doctor i need a note for what anything literally anything i can't take time (laughs) off i feel like i'm dying it's like cause cause of death disney honestly that's what yeah. that's what it's sounding like you're describing and i mean we're talking about some like really dedicated people that obviously love their mm-hmm. jobs but it's just like you d- the company was seeing that they needed to ease up some of the pressure off you know specifically their animators that are just like right. really really burning out um so their solution mm-hmm. was to split the team in two so you don't just have one film circulating at a time You've got, you know, different teams working on different films. So the other movie that's happening at the same time is The Lion King, which. Oh, that that little guy. The the little the little movie that that could. Um, So it was just called Lions at the time, which I think is just like worst title ever. That's so bad. Um, Oh, it's terrible. (laughs) How descriptive. Yeah. Lions. Lions. And and right off the bat, there's some there's some competition 
you know, between the two movies in a way. It's just like what people are going to work on now that they're not working on, you know, every film coming through. So it's a little bit of like, you know, which one has a bit more of the leg up. Um, Pocahontas was just like off to a better start having a, a director that had directed a film before and Michael Gabriel. Okay. Um, and then the other guy I'm blanking on his name. Eric Goldberg. Eric Goldberg. Thank you. Yes. He um, was the supervising animator of the genie, which coming off of that huge success with the Latin. So it's like, you've got these two guys that know know what they're doing. Um, And then Mm -hmm. of course, the one and only Glenn Keane, who's like the, you know, the shining star uh, in the animation department at Disney is cast to do Pocahontas. So just with that lineup already, Pocahontas is already looking more appealing to people that, you know, want to work with those guys. Right. Now, my question is, you were saying that people were being split into two teams. Did they have a say? Because I'm thinking like, okay, again, I want to go back to the heart attacks for a second. Yeah. Could I have gone to like Katzenberg and been like, uh, excuse me, Mr. Katzenberg. Um, my wife died of a heart attack. We're both animators here. Do you think it'd be cool if I picked which one I worked on? Because you know, you kind of ruined my life or like what, what's the flow? How does that work? I feel like, you know, things that I've read is Disney did take that into account, but it definitely the dead spouse or what they wanted. Well, what they want, what they wanted, who has, you know, the, the most, who's the most stressed out. You get to choose now. Um, you get to pick. The perks of being stressed. Yes, exactly. Um, okay. From from what I've heard, they you know they take into account what people want to work on, but seniority okay. really matters. So like when Glenn says, True. "I want to do Pocahontas," they're like, "Sure, Glenn, whatever you want, right away, Glenn. Sir. You can yeah. do you know, <laughs> yes, absolutely. You want to work on both, Glenn? Yeah. You go for it, Glenn. <laughs> but the other guys." The, you know, more of the in-betweeners or cleanup artists, I think they would have had a lot less of a say and kind of just like, you know, put where Mm -hmm. where it's going to fit. So, um, right. Yeah. Um, Another huge appeal for people to work on Pocahontas over Lions is um, (laughs) what the music is like at the time. So. Um, we've got Ooh, yes. we've got Alan Menken back of Pocahontas, and he's kind of doing his thing with that. And then Lions has just Elton John, and what I'm picturing at this point is just like you know, you know the Can You Feel the Love Tonight? That's just Elton on the piano. Yeah, like I think I, I think that's what they hear, you know. And you know, it doesn't have the like da like you know, yeah, 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 pizzazz yet. <laughs> That's that not the, you. You. that's not <laughs> infused yet. So it's like right. when you okay. compare those so, two things. I'm picturing, yeah, I'm picturing like so Elton John's quiet, emotional power love ballad laid over top of one of those flip books you draw as a kid where it's like a man slipping mm-hmm. on a banana peel, like you know, really early storyboards, but it's lions. Yeah. Just like walking around. Yeah. And can you imagine being one of the animators and sitting and being shown this? It would be like Adam Scott's face in Parks and Rec after like the thing blows up at that mm-hmm. event they're doing. And it yeah. zooms on his face and he's clapping, <laughs> but he looks really concerned. Like that, I yeah. feel, would be the Lion King <laughs> yeah, animation exactly. team looking at it and going like, what are we supposed to be working on? And like, I think what's so funny, too, is that there are going to be a lot of people who are listening to us talk about Elton John and are like, it's Elton John. Like yeah. you can't be mad about Elton John, but I think your bigger point mm-hmm. is just that at the early stages of production, it doesn't fit yet with what the story yes. is. Like yes. he's an incredible songwriter. He's an incredible lyricist. No disrespect to Elton, obviously. No, no. I no. feel like we just got to get that out there right now. Like yeah. The same way that we're not doing Aladdin and there's a reason, there's a reason that Elton just wasn't the draw yet, but mm-hmm. you know, Alan was, and may I please now interject to talk about my boy, Alan of course, Menken. of course. You know that I am passionate about a Disney score. And you know that I am particularly passionate when Alan is involved. And at this point, so mid 90s, when Alan is working on Pocahontas, at the time, it was the largest score ever written for a Disney animated feature, which oh, wow. as you mentioned, like, yeah. with someone like Alan working mm-hmm. on a score that is the biggest ever like that already is an achievement. So people get excited about that. And for me, quite honestly, the Pocahontas score Mm -hmm. is the quintessential disney score like do you remember that project i did in like 
second or third year university where I interviewed people, what their favorite Disney moments were. Oh, yes. I put together a yes, clip I show do. and then played the ending piece of music from the film, which is called Farewell. Like that, oh, I get emotional just thinking about it. That piece of music to me is Disney. Like that yeah. is Disney music. So mm-hmm. like it's the creme de la creme, best of the best. And Alan had just come off of the success of Aladdin, The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, yeah. et cetera. And what made this film difficult though for him would be that this is the first score he's working on that Howard, our dear yes. Howard Ashman, yes. is not around for. Mm-hmm. So he was approached, he being Alan, was approached by Disney to work on this score, but they needed a lyricist. Alan mm-hmm. is a composer who's yeah. going to write the lyrics. And this guy, Stephen Schwartz, was brought up and he made his first major Disney appearance. Now, Stephen Schwartz is, he's not Howard because no one's Howard, but no his one is. repertoire of skills, very similar. Mm-hmm. He had a theater background, a lot of folk and classical influences in his music and his lyrics. So he's got a lot of that same quick-witted, like, turn on a dime kind of lyrics going on. Yeah. But there was a very interesting tension at the beginning of this partnership. So they didn't know each other, right? It wasn't like Alan and Howard coming in to Disney together, like bros on the loose. We're going to turn this around. Alan and Steven met while working on Pocahontas and Alan was used to not only co-writing lyrics, but also writing the score when he worked with Mm -hmm. Howard, right? They had an understanding of how the other person worked and what their skills were. And Steven was used to writing lyrics and co-writing the score. So there be, there entered this unique sense of competition as yeah, they started to work out, you know, the details, mm-hmm. right? It's kind of like, it's hard not to feel threatened when you know you could do the job as well as the person you're working with, especially when you're new, right? It's like yeah. working on a group project with people totally. and you're like, I know I'm supposed to let you do your bit, but I don't want to. Yeah. So, so there was... <laughs> It was an exciting score to be working on, an exciting project for people to be involved in, but there was that tension. And this really just kind of reminds me of, as if I was there, this <laughs> reminds me of the stories I've heard about Tim Allen and Tom Hanks working together during Toy Story, which again is mm-hmm. around the same time at yeah, Disney, but that's a good example. their chemistry is considered some of the best in Disney Pixar history. Mm-hmm. Like Buzz and Woody, iconic duo, right? Mm-hmm. But them working together at the beginning, they just couldn't find their rhythm. It just wasn't working. Yeah. And Steven and Allen were the same. But over the course of working on this soundtrack, what I think is so cool about these guys, as if these old guys, <laughs> these old dudes are cool, man, yeah. super rad, but they learn to leave room for the other person's art. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes the lyrics may be needed to take more precedence. So something like Just Around the River Bend maybe was more about like, you know, the score than the lyrics. So Stephen would step back. But then the love theme, If I Never Knew You, that's about the lyrics. Mm-hmm. So Alan would take a step back with the score. And the perfect fusion of their skills has to be Colors of the Wind. Like not only is it one of the most popular, right? Not only is it one of the most popular karaoke songs, at least in my experience, my very hair flip uh, extensive experience, but it's also was the first song written for the film, which started to set a tone for the way that the art direction went and also the story and character development. And if I never knew you then, was supposed to kind of carry it the way that, you know, some part of your world carried it. But as we all know, if I never knew you is not that great. And I know for you in particular, this is a bone of contention. You, you hate it, right? You hate it a lot. Yeah. And if it, so when, whenever we've watched Pocahontas together in the past, what I think is hilarious is what do you do? The movie ends. She's up on the rock. He's going away. Her picture turns into like a relief. And then what do you do? immediately it's like a, a mad dash to turn it off before the lyrics of if i never knew you start in the credits like i have Absolutely. to beat it if i hear even like no. an if like i'm just like so mad no. because then it's in my head forever you don't if 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 lish starts hearing if lish starts hearing the synth drums you know how it starts with that do 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 i hate it as soon as yeah. it starts lish is cringing it's like the hairs are up on the back of her neck her teeth are bared like it's like get this away from me yeah. and what's even worse is that the special edition of the film and of the soundtrack included a quote unquote film ready version where none other than mel gibson oh, is God. singing yeah. Oh, it's terrible. It's so I bad. I don't think and I've heard that, but I, I don't want to. You don't need yeah. to. Honestly, I like to torture you with things like little boots and little arms and like whatever <laughs> else. But like, I will not, I will not make you, more on that some other time, guys. Yeah. <laughs> I will not make you listen to the Mel Gibson version of If I Never Knew You. Thank it's you. just not necessary for anybody to hear. 
So, so if I never knew you aside, we've got some yes. like <laughs> some really like you said, Colors of the Wind was the first thing. So it's probably like Colors of the Wind playing over here with Alan and then Elton John versus Elton <laughs> with Lyons over here on the piano. And it's like, which one do you want to do? And Glenn Keane's over here. And, you know, I mean, they did have Deja, whatever over there, but still. Andreas, yeah. yeah, it's like it's like in Survivor when the last person's left and they get to choose their tribe. Yeah, and it's like I'm obviously picking the tribe with Boston Rub. Like, am yeah. I stupid? Like, I'm obviously going over there. He's played eight thousand yeah. times. Like, yeah. it's just I'm obviously doing. Yeah, that. yeah. So yeah. just to add like fuel to this fire, because like mm. I don't know, I don't know why, but the the final like nail in the coffin for like Pocahontas being the A squad was when in a staff meeting where everybody's present, Katzenberg says Pocahontas is going to be a home run and Lion King is just a base hit. He says that to like a room full of people that are either working on Pocahontas or the Lion King. Who is this person? This is like when the field hockey coach told me in grade 10 that I was worse than the kids who had never played. And that's why I didn't make the team. Like this is the same level of inappropriate. (laughs) like who who does that like and and I don't know if this is just like his leadership style like let's just Mm. like turn everyone against each other or make he thinks this is gonna make people try harder or like if he just has no filter like I have no idea but I'm just like not killing it into it killing it yeah What is his problem? I, what is, I don't know. And I think it's so ironic because after Oliver and company came out, he told the people working on Little Mermaid, oh, this one's not going to be a hit because it's oh, a girl's yeah. movie. They're like, you're not going to do as good as Oliver and company. And it's just like, remember you like how, yeah. how out of touch are we with, with what's going I on? You're so wrong. I'm, you know what? So wrong. He's so annoying. Like, I can't wait till we spend some time diving into all the things he did wrong. Yeah. Like that could be a season unto uh, yeah. itself. Seriously. Like, I don't, we'd have to call it killing it with Katzenberg yeah. and have a lot of like canned laughter and like booing sounds. Yeah. Ready. Because yeah, the dude just, no, no, not my fave, not my fave, not my fave. No. Anyway, despite him, the Lion King team obviously pulled it together and, you know, made like the most successful animated movie of all time. So good for you. Yeah, like just casual. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? That's what I call an underdog story. Exactly. More on that in season two. Back to Pocahontas. I just want to talk about the art director real quick. Um, One of our favorite guys, Michael Giamo. Mm. Uh, known yes. for being the art director on this as well as the production designer on both Frozen movies. So guy, oh, the guy yes. clearly knows what he's doing. I think his story oh, is really 100%. interesting because he's someone that was always really interested in art and you know wanted to pursue that as a career but never quite thought he mm-hmm. had the chops uh, and never felt talented enough. That is heartbreaking. Yeah, I know. I it's that. it's sad <laughs> when that happens. I'm glad he came around. Like I'm glad he found his way into his passion, but like when I hear that such talented people had such a like I don't know. Yeah. Construed, like misconstrued idea of themselves or their talents. I, I think that's just so unfortunate because I mean the work he created and is creating is still so exceptional, but mm-hmm. what, how much more could he have done? Do you know what I mean? Like how much, how much more joy yeah. could he have brought to my life? For sure. <laughs> Selfishly. Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, he's, he did stumble into it pretty early. So he like, mm-hmm. he thought that because he couldn't be an artist, he would teach art. So he did go to school and everything for that. Um, and he was taking art classes himself just as like a night school thing, just to kind of keep, Fresh, and he randomly cold called uh, Cal Arts, which is known as like mm. the Disney school where Disney hires a lot yeah. of their animators and stuff from, um, especially back in like the the late seventies and eighties when he would right. have been around there. Um, and it was the first year that they were actually doing like a animation classes, so he's something oh. he'd always been interested in. So he signed up. So he was in, I believe, the second year with people like okay. John Lasseter, um, Tim Burton, right. uh, Chris Buck. Mm-hmm. I heard that him and Chris Buck are like besties and they were uh, like, one of them was in the other one's wedding and like all that. And wait, stuff. for the people at home who don't recognize the name Chris Buck, 
Oh, uh, like director of Tarzan, and then he co-directed both of the Frozen movies. So obviously they worked together there as well. I knew that. Of course you did. There's someone out there who doesn't that needed that context. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. Sorry to slow you down. Oh, no no worries. So we went to CalArts. He was there for a bit and then um, ended up getting hired straight to Disney after. Um, It was like a bit of a like rocky road for him at first. Disney, especially at the time, they were really just like looking for animators. There wasn't like a way at CalArts or even like, you know, getting into Disney Mm. to do something besides that. Um, This is a time where like the nine old men and, you know, all those animators that worked with Walt are now getting very old. So we've got to like replace that huge Truly old men. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Truly old men at this point. (laughs) Their main focus is just like replacing their rough animators. So that's where he started. I think he, you know, would have done some cleanup animation, maybe some like rough um, in between work that kind of thing. Yep. Um, eventually left Disney, uh, was at Warner Brothers for a while and mm. um, started to find his like footing and more of the like layout design team, which is like where he really started to shine. Um, he came okay. back for Pocahontas, was originally just going to do some initial design work and then was convinced by Michael Gabriel to stay as the art director for the film. Oh. So, And didn't he teach himself how to paint? Yes. For this. Yes, he did like, that. Didn't he, he's like never too old to stop, like to start yeah. learning again. So like taught yes. himself a new skill. He, Crazy. He did um, when he got oh, started, which was really cool. Um, another thing that I found really interesting about this and Curbs, you can back me up on this. Mm-hmm. When even before we yes. started researching this movie, I was like, I think Pocahontas is like the sleeping beauty of the Renaissance, like just with Can how confirm. beautiful yep. it is and just like the care that was obviously taken into like the background art and the character animation. Mm-hmm. And then when I did some research on Michael Giamo, I discovered that Sleeping Beauty was actually a huge inspiration and not just Sleeping Beauty, but Ivan Earl, you remember our friend from oh, the Sleeping Beauty I episode, um, who yes. was, uh, you know, really responsible for all of the creative choices on that one. Kind of the sleep, the sleeping beauty guy. Yes. Yeah, just casual. SBG. Yeah. Was like yeah. a huge, huge inspiration for this uh, film. They ended up taking mm-hmm. like a big trip to Virginia to like kind of scout what the area would be like to talk to some members of the Powhatan tribe. And then it became clear that the Ivan Earl aesthetic was the way to go. So that was just a really big you know, thing that I saw and even Mm. watching it again, um, the place I noticed it the most was, uh, you know, when you first see like the Powhatan tribe after they're like in England and then it goes over to that scene, just like the depth and the trees. And I mean, not the like color palette so much, but there's just so many similarities to like the detail and everything that was Mm -hmm. in Sleeping Beauty just mirrored here, which I thought was really cool. Yes. Yeah, even the opening shots with the title of the film mm, across yes. the fog and yeah. then like how you're moving through the fog and it feels like you're actually moving through it, not just mm-hmm. over top of it or beside it, like a lot of depth and dimension. Yeah, and everything. just like making yeah. sure that everything was really crisp and just like the edges were really sharp. They obviously put mm-hmm. a lot of energy into the cleanup animation of this film and just like, you know, a lot of time went there. And Giamo said himself, he said, nothing is ever going to be as beautiful as Sleeping Beauty because they'll just never have that amount of time or budget again. But with Pocahontas, Mm -hmm. they were really trying to, you know, get as close as they could. They really tried. They tried. You know, the old college try. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, they did did an exceptional job. Like you said, there's so many. It's beautiful. There's so many instances where, like, at any moment, if you were to pause the film and just look at like the landscapes in particular, mm-hmm. which is again, like what Ivan Earl was really focused on in Sleeping Beauty, the landscapes are incredible. Yeah. Like it's, there's such a stark contrast between everything that also still somehow feels natural. It's very, mm-hmm. yes. very detailed and it's, and it's detailed while still being simple somehow, which I know is an oxymoron, but it's like, it's not like they've it's not like in monsters inc where sully's individual furs or mara's hair is all Mm -hmm. individually animated it's just like the attention to natural shapes and layout Mm -hmm. is very apparent yes that just makes it feel more organic yes a hundred percent um another thing that they did that kind of i've only really seen in sleeping beauty is they 
weren't afraid to use the color black, which it's not something you mm. actually see in a lot of animated films. But if you like think That's about true. it, like Ratcliffe's hair, Pocahontas's hair, Ratcliffe's outfit at the end, um, like normally yeah. in, in animated films, they'll shy away from like a stark black. It'll be, you know, like favoring a dark brown. And why is that? Uh, just because it how it like contrasts with other colors and it's just like can be very mm. like stark, you know, to Muddy the and, eye, you yeah. know, um, gotcha. and black is often like an outline color as well. So it's just like true. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. Depending, gotcha. depending on the style. Uh, one other thing that they did that I thought was really interesting, similar to Sleeping Beauty, is they actually filmed a lot of the acting with an actor and then. Mm-hmm. similarly had the animators um tracing that movement and i think like one of really? the okay the, they really wanted the characters to feel really realistic and it was mm-hmm. a bit of a departure from what they had been doing in the renaissance so far which like if you look at like ariel for example and how she's animated she's got like very big eyes and she's like very exaggerated in her expressions and she's got like the big hair sleuth you know things like that that they were Mm -hmm. just trying to go much more realistic on on Pocahontas and you know not make her as expressive but being able to still show how she's show her emotions in like quieter moment and more realistic which um I think was a challenge for a lot of them one that like Keen seemed to be really excited about mm-hmm. and I heard that he had a lot of fun with her in this and you know going in a different direction than than the other gals from the past yeah well I think it is very interesting that they shot this in live action like to me for some reason it like it makes sense everything you're saying makes perfect sense especially when they're trying to pick up on subtler like natural organic mm-hmm. human movement so that it feels like it fits with the landscape and the vibe they're going for overall but also for some reason in my head that sounds like such an old like archaic mm-hmm. method of animating like because because we first learned about it and talked about it with like Walt's original three and movies from like the 30s through 50s and this is now the 90s and they're like let's pull that out like it's interesting to yeah me. and I mean a reason they would do it like back in the 50s was they didn't really have a lot of animation reference now they have that like mm. that exists but when they're looking at yeah. what they had done recently they're like we don't really want to do that anymore we want to do something a little bit different how do we achieve that when you know all our animators right. are just coming off of these movies that were all done very mm-hmm. stylistically in this way so they're trying to figure out how yeah. we, we, you know, take that jump to the next level. Yeah. Well, and I mean, they did that in a lot of ways. Like we've talked about a lot of them, but this is the first film that's based on real people. More on that mm-hmm. later. Um, and like you said, Glenn Keane really loved working in those quieter moments, finding a lot of subtleties in the way mm-hmm. that her hair moved. But can we talk about that scene where she's kind of spying on John Smith? And you know how we've talked about this before. That crouch walk. Oh, yes. I want to know. Okay. I don't know how many times you've tried it yourself. I've tried it as an adult. I've tried it. (laughs) And I have never been able to get it. So I'm wondering if they used live act, like live actors to act this out. Like, did Glenn just make that up or did someone actually move that way? And he's like, grand, love it. Because I don't know. I don't know. How she does it. Because, like, I feel like I'm pretty close when I'm doing it. (laughs) Have you ever watched yourself do it, though? Maybe I just, like, feel like... I'm more graceful than I actually am. I don't know. Maybe we'll have to like record this for our, for our Instagram show people oh our Pocahontas crawls. Yeah. Yeah. At scenario D podcast on Instagram, yeah. uh, in case you were wondering where to find us, but that's the beauty of animation that you can make mm-hmm. things look and feel real because of the context of like the landscape they're in or like, you know, in Pocahontas in particular, the landscape was such a powerful part of the story, like, and the leaves. And did I, am I misremembering this? I thought I heard somewhere that Katzenberg fought against the color palette. Oh my gosh. In this film. Is that true? It's a hundred percent true. Like he was like not a fan and I'm just like. Get the gong out, Jeffrey. Like (laughs) gong this guy. I I know. Honestly, get him out. Like strike three, you're out. Yeah. It it doesn't (laughs) seem like him and Giamo were really like on the same page, but uh, 
Who's on Jeffrey's page though? Yeah, seriously. Who? Yeah. Because Glenn wasn't on his page with the Little Mermaid, and I'm I'm sure there was stuff in Beauty and the Beast. Like yeah. I know we just talked about it, but I've forgotten already. But I'm sure there were things there too. Let's jump back. Sorry, I had to derail it there for just one hot second because we had to just rake Jeffrey across the coals for the umpteenth time. As but always. let's jump back to a little bit of the character development here in this film because Pocahontas is, we're starting to move now into maybe more of the like problem areas of this film, which I think mm-hmm. is really important for talk to talk about. And a yeah. lot of those issues come from how Pocahontas was portrayed as a character. So, you know, she was different from the other princesses that came before her for a lot of reasons, not just because she is an indigenous person, but also because she was a lot older. She was in that like 18 to 20 range in the Disney version. So there was a different maturity that had to come with that, that other princesses really hadn't had. Like, I guess Ariel was 16, Belle was like 17 or 18, but the the weight of the story they were carrying was not as, I'll use the word intense, as Pocahontas is. Yes. Like, because yes. Disney was trying to tell a more realistic story, Pocahontas had to carry a lot more responsibility and maturity at all times. Well, her story was just like, not just about her you know? Yes. Where it's like Ariel, it's like, that's just about you. Belle, that's just about you. You know? (laughs) It's true. Yeah. Yeah, Like there were, there were more consequences that had ripple effects. Uh, Shout out to grandmother Willow, I guess, because she talks about the ripples. So small at first, but look how they grow. But you're right. Like there's, there were so many other things that the character Pocahontas had to be aware of and the impact of them aware of at all times that this meant that no character like her had existed before. So mm-hmm. instead of starting with a base, like if we look at Jasmine, Belle, and Ariel, they all have similar face shapes. Their eyes are pretty big. Like you said, their hair has a similar texture and flow yeah. and bounce and whatever. But with Pocahontas, Glenn Keane actually started from scratch. Like blank yeah. page, like how do I animate a character that's supposed to encompass all of these things that we're trying to encapsulate? And this is why he paid so much attention to those like really small facial expressions and movements. And he used a lot of concept sketches from early explorers as a basis, as like research into like, you know, what she might have looked like. And again, that's problematic. We will touch on that Mm -hmm. in just a little bit. Um, But because she was such a big project there were no fewer than 15 animators on wow. his team which is insane yeah i am not the animation production manager here you are but i'm pretty sure 15 yeah. with a superstar like glenn at the helm is crazy yeah i am mean I it's it's a lot for for just one character because like you've got to think like if all these people are working at the same time you need to make mm-hmm. sure there's some like continuity to this character so i mean i think that's probably yeah. where like filming a lot of it really came in handy so that there was you know a guidebook for yeah for everybody who's animating her and I mean yeah. a lot of work for Glenn because you've got to make sure that like everybody is in lockstep with everything that they're doing mm-hmm. and how things are flowing so yeah that yeah. would have been a big undertaking for him for sure yeah well and unlike what happened with the beast as a human in Beauty and the Beast where he looks kind of weird at the end, because of how the animation was like divided with the cleanup artist, yeah, you don't get anything like that with Pocahontas. No. Like they nope. really, his his direction as like lead animator on yeah. her would have been incredible. But I think just the production on this film in general, it's an exa- it's another example of how tightly like yeah. organized yep. this film was um, from a production perspective. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. really quite impressive that there's nothing but continuity with yeah. all of the characters. So our our villain of the story, we've got Governor Ratcliffe. What a guy. Oh, boy. Um, So also based on a real person, one of the original 110 passengers to land and settle in Jamestown. Um, And like his motivation for riches and power does come from the actual historical figure. Um, He was appointed as a part of the Royal Council to oversee the new colony. So very like similar in his his arc there. Um, Mm -hmm. random fact, did you know that him and Wiggins were actually voiced by the same, uh, actor? I did not, but I can hear it now that you say it. Now it's super obvious to me. The same way that like, when you know that is it, and is it David Ogden Steers? Mm -hmm. It is, right? Yep. Yeah. Because I was about to, I was about to use the example of the narrator and Cogsworth in Beauty and the Beast, which is also David Ogden. Yeah. (laughs) It's also David Ogden Steers. But 
you know what's another Curbs unpopular opinion? Like Wiggins was one of my favorite characters growing up. Oh my God. I loved him. I thought he was, I know. I don't, why do I have terrible taste? Like, honestly, know. why, why am I always left of center for everything? <laughs> like, I'm never with everybody else, but I'm a beautiful, unique snowflake. It's fine. Yeah, I'm a unicorn. You're fine. I always thought Wiggins was so funny. And it was that stupid headband he made where he goes, I, I, I made it myself. I always thought that was so funny and clever. And I was like, he's so artistic and creative. Like, I don't think I loved him. Like, I don't think I had a crush on Wiggins. We can't be sure. Thank goodness. Yeah. We can't be sure, though, because I was just like, wow, so creative, so funny. But I did always really find him amusing. And uh, an interesting, an interesting villain. I think they kind of followed suit with what they were doing with Gaston. Where oh, Gaston, don't even get me started. You opened the box. Oh what did I do? Honestly, you mentioned that name, and I'm off to the races. Sorry, guys. Yeah, this. I mean, Lish is apologizing for that, and probably something else by the yeah. end of this episode. But the fact that you brought Gaston up, thank you so much for mentioning him here in this forum. I am thrilled to have his name on my lips once more. I am not unhappy about this whatsoever. Okay. Okay. I'm sorry. Please go ahead. Just want to shout out there, Gaston. Love you. Never change. <laughs> Back to the point. But then the yearbook. Have a great summer. <laughs> as, as I was saying, so as the villain, uh, <laughs> Ratcliffe and Gaston are similar <laughs> in that they're not bringing, you know, a lot of like, you know, magic and sorcery. And they're not, I mean, they yeah. don't, they do look evil, but not like in a, abruptly obvious way they were actually originally going to animate uh like the initial designs for Ratcliffe he was more of like a pear-shaped character like his center of gravity was a lot lower and then when you know as they developed the story and they were like okay he's like the main villain here they put the more emphasis in his chest to make him kind of look Mm -hmm. more pompous and like add to that and like bigger, he, more foreboding. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. and he doesn't have like the nicest face. Like he looks like a villain, <laughs> but it's not like he was hit in the face with a brick, and yeah. we both know it. Like man, that he's that a brick nose. Let me tell you. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, but yeah. yeah, it's just like a more he is no guest on. There's a more maturity to like this kind of villainy that's like this mm-hmm. could be, and you know, realistically was in this case a real person and the way that yes. they would think and act. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, a, a contrast to like an Ursula or something like yes. that. That's just like evil, you know? Yeah. I think uh, you mentioned how like Governor Radcliffe's character kind of changed over the course of making the movie. Another really interesting one was uh, Grandmother Willow. Did you know that uh, originally Grandmother Willow was supposed to be <laughs> Old Man River? So not a tree. It wasn't even a tree. Was it like a, like it was a, I thought it was still a tree. Body of water, I feel. Oh. Oh, you thought it was a tree? I don't know. I just assume with a name like Old Man River that we're being pretty on the nose here because Grandmother Willow is a willow tree. So like, so it's like Moana, like where the water just like, you know, gets up and like has like speaks (laughs) to her. I don't know. I, I could see them putting a face in the water i don't know it would have been bad let's yeah. just let's just call it it would have been bad and i know we're saying that because the film is grandmother willow so that's what we're familiar with but they had cast gregory peck as old man river and do you know who that is gregory peck somewhere in the back of my brain i do please remind me <laughs> he was a he was a big deal he was the atticus finch from to oh Kill yes yes So very like commanding voice Mm -hmm. and like recognizable, I'm sure to a lot of people at the time. And just like instant respect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like after he was cast, he was like, no guys, this is all wrong. Like this should probably be like a maternal figure. Uh, I'm outie, 3000. Like I'm out. I don't want to be here anymore. And they were like, oh, okay. Jeffrey Katzenberg is like, what? What happened? I was too busy (laughs) ignoring the palettes and how good they are for the film. All of the stuff that they did with this movie, we've talked about it a lot already but like this movie was a big deal for the mm-hmm. studio yeah it was supposed to be like a new precedent it was supposed to be this like super successful they had big hopes for it and like as a result they had this absolutely massive marketing campaign for the movie. yeah like huge they went all in like i can oh all in like the merchandise ahead of time you got it and they yeah. did a premiere in central park with like a big stage show and fireworks which like is this the precursor to phantasmic don't know there's a huge pocahontas vignette in 
Yeah, there's the like John Smith swinging from the, (laughs) you know, that's the best part of that show. John John Smith swings in with his uh, hair wig. Um, Hair wig? Listen, I was trying to say helmet. (laughs) Helmet wig. (laughs) Well, because it has to be a helmet. There's no way that guy is swinging down on a rope like without... You know, fun fact, um, I've heard when I when I was there, I heard through the grapevine that Pocahontas in Fantasmic is usually a man so that she's tall enough to be seen because you can't see her otherwise on that uh, oh, big donut cropping. Yeah. Yeah. The same way that, sorry to spoil like wishes for anybody. I mean, rest in peace wishes, but like Tinkerbell was often a man too for the yes, same reason. Yes, just because like, physically they tend to take yeah. up more space. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, um, the impact of this movie was huge for a number of reasons. The first one that Disney is probably prouder of is that mm-hmm. it advanced animation into the realm of movie making for adults. So people were still kind of coming around to the fact that animated movies are not just little kids movies. You know, what is what does Peter call them? Your little cartoon movies? Little cartoon movies. Yeah. <laughs> this this specifically was the raccoon movie. Oh, the what? raccoon movie. The raccoon movie. Great. Yeah. Well he picked up on the important characters. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, to your point, I think a lot of what they were going for and like, I think this was just like Katzenberg was hungry <laughs> for the Oscar. They yeah. like got a taste with Beauty yes. and the Beast. They got close. And I think mm-hmm. after that, he just, that's what he wanted. And he, you know, was trying to line up all the stars with this one to make that happen. Yeah. But they really... Well, and- missed the boat we saw things like that even in the little mermaid remember how we talked about ursula's you know final showdown scene was inspired by Dar- die hard like yeah. katzenberg really wanted to be creating animated films that were inspired by live action films which relates back to what you're talking about with this desire to work the romeo and juliet story yes. in because it resonates with adults it's familiar tale as old as time everyone knows where it's going and this is a great place to now transition into a lot of those things you and I learned about yeah. the negative impacts of this film. And I think just to say quickly, the Romeo and Juliet yeah. angle, that was the first thing that they did wrong. Like right from the beginning, oh. this story was yes. not going to be authentic to the actual story of mm. Pocahontas because it, they were trying to make that fit. And that just does not, that yes. just wasn't at all what was happening here. No. So it, that was like the, Right from the get-go, it was like a huge misstep for them. Yeah, and I think like a way that you and I have summarized this as we've been learning and talking about it is kind of like Disney chose to be accurate when it was convenient Mm -hmm. and then to abandon it when it wasn't. Yeah. So originally, Pocahontas was intended to be a more historically accurate film. Originally, in early drafts of the story, Pocahontas was closer in age to the historical figure who was Mm -hmm. 11 or 12, and the Powhatan tribe were going to actually speak in their native language. So Pocahontas learning English was originally intended to be a big part of the story and a way of maintaining the Powhatan tribe's culture in mm-hmm. the film. So yeah. as a result of that, you know, Disney started off with, you know, some good steps towards that, keeping that, you know, story intact. They reportedly hired indigenous actors for all of the indigenous roles. So all of the main characters yeah. who are members of the Powhatan tribe are indigenous actors. And they also consulted with a number of historians and a lot of Native American organizations in the Virginia and American Indian areas when they were developing the film. And part of that People already were cynical. People were already speculating at this time that this was a reaction to the backlash they received from the Arab American community after Aladdin was released. Because yeah, while, while Aladdin is a completely fictitious story, they did pick and choose what features they wanted to caricature, which Mm -hmm. characters were very whitewashed. Like it was, there were a lot of issues with representation in that film as well. So a lot of people were already kind of, you know, not convinced that this yeah. was going to be, a, you know, above board telling of the Pocahontas story. And this is where everything started to really go south, like you said, with changes to the story. So the American Indians and Film Association offered to help with the historical accuracy of the film, but started to be ignored by producers of the film. Producers were kind of like, no, we got it from here. We're okay. We know what we're doing. And 
Disney has always acknowledged that the figures in Pocahontas are based on real people, but there's no acknowledgement of the liberties they took. So like you said, like this Romeo and Juliet story is completely inaccurate. And a lot of that is because they, (laughs) they base their retelling of the story on the folklore and legendary status of the John Smith Pocahontas story. And a lot of that comes from his own journals and diaries, like a white man from colonial times who was a colonialist who participated in the genocide of first nations peoples wrote down his version of the story. And Disney's like, yeah, that seems legit. Let's use that. This isn't peer reviewed. This isn't, you know, really. And a lot of historians basically call that stuff very inaccurate and not a a clear representation of what actually happened. Absolutely. And like, just because Pocahontas has become almost like a folk tale or has this legendary status in the States that doesn't, it's not a viable reason for ignoring the negative effects of colonialism on indigenous peoples represented in the film. Right. So Immediately following the release of the movie, Disney film execs made a lot of statements around the fact that the story is open to interpretation and that everything, you know, needs to be viewed with both sides of the story. But the reality is very few facets of the story they're claiming to be telling are true. Um, A woman named Shirley Little Dove Custolo McGowan, who was a key consultant on the movie, who also teaches Native American education in schools, um, she's written quite a bit about this film and she has shared that Disney started the project on track and then veered way off course. So as you mentioned, Lish, this Romeo and Juliet romance and sexualization part of the story has been the most upsetting part for a yeah. lot of First Nations peoples because originally the story was going to be that she was a young girl, accurate, who showed reverence but not love for John Smith, which also could have been accurate. But by making her older, you you completely remove the accurate parts of the relationship between first nations and like European settlers. Like you completely lose that. So by having her fall in love with a white person, a lot of first nations people feel that it gives the impression that she welcomed the settlers and was okay with what was happening. And even, even the fact that at the end of the movie, like she's friends with Thomas and, you know, she gently puts her hand on his arm to console him. And like, there's a line of First Nations people and a line of white people like standing on the banks. Like it's, that's not how it went. Like we're conveniently ignoring genocide. Yeah. <laughs> Which is. And the whole part crazy. where like she is like going to sacrifice her life for John Smith. Like that's straight out of yeah. like his depiction. And yes. it's just like the, the timelines don't even line up. Like she would have been a little no. girl and they wouldn't have you know, met before then. So it's just like, she wouldn't have been at an execution. Like she, because of her age, she wouldn't have even been there at that type of ceremony. Yeah, like but, it's just... but the people at the people at Disney are looking at that as like, Oh, what a interesting story moment. Yes. And if their focus is on how do we make a movie that wins the best picture? And like, is this and that, Yes. then, you know, goes back to they're picking the parts that are, are equaling, you know, the yeah. best case for them. Yeah. And like, you're not going to get a best picture nomination if the story is about a girl who was kidnapped, who died in England at the age of 21. She was baptized in Christianity and married this other guy named John. Um, you know, like the <laughs> it's, they left out all the quote unquote best parts, right? Like they whitewashed it and erased the trauma of yeah. this Pocahontas story. And I think the, the thought I want to end on here, which impacted me greatly when I worked at Disney world, um, Rest in peace, Camp Mini Mickey. But when I was best friends with Chip and Dale for a summer, they had a meet and greet location in Animal Kingdom uh, in the part of the park that's now Pandora, just to help place everyone in the right place. Yeah. And Pocahontas also had a gazebo there where she would meet and greet guests, which was fun for us. Like she always loved hanging out with the chipmunks. We loved hanging out with her. And I remember the one day there were a lot of character performer actors or called spares that just didn't have anything to do. No one called in sick. There was nowhere for them to go. So um, the directors of the park entertainment were like, Hey, we'll just have some like surprise pop-up meet and greets happen, which sounded exciting. Those are the best days I when know. you're at like, Disney and you get like the, yeah. the characters that aren't usually out. Yeah. You might get, time. you might get like Jafar coming out in Hollywood studios. You mm-hmm. might get Thumper and his girlfriend yeah. in animal kingdom. But on this particular day, they proposed having Pocahontas, Ratcliffe and Miko meet together in Pocahontas' mm-hmm. gazebo. And I remember the 
the girl playing Pocahontas was very uncomfortable with this because, and she had very valid questions. It's like, oh, I bet. Why, yeah. why would I be spending time with the man who tried to kill me? Why would I be spending time with someone who tried to destroy my people? Like it just, it, the, yeah. the fact that the colonists were trying to commit and did commit genocide was completely ignored. And the answer that we as character performers were given was that like, Oh, like, you know, Ratcliffe has changed his ways and that's why he and Pocahontas are friends now. Like it's just, it's just a, a wild, wild move to take a man who's literally a racist <laughs> and put him yeah. with Pocahontas. Like, and, and so, like I said, that impacted me greatly in my time at Disney and has been mm-hmm. one of the things that impacts me now still, like as I continue to like learn more about this film and the impact it has on the people it's said to represent. And so like, I know th- yeah. while you and I went through this to prepare for this episode, like we learned a lot. And I think one of the things we learned most is that it's an ongoing experience. Like there's more, there's more resources to explore. There's more things to learn. And what I think we both agree is important is that we want to continue sharing what we learn with other people and encourage them to do the same. Yeah, for sure. That's, that's the only way films like this um, can stop hurting people. And I mean, we both love it as an artistic achievement, but we wanted to make sure that we addressed the issues and acknowledge that we see them as issues too. It's not something we want to ignore. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when, you know, you're watching this with kids uh, that Mm -hmm. might just think, oh, like this is actually what happened. And you're getting a really just false interpretation of what actually went down in history. And I think it's, like you said, really important that we acknowledge you know what's what's wrong with this movie what's incorrect Mm -hmm. and you know continue learning and talking about it okay folks as always we are back with an apology and mine this week is I am so sorry for blasting your eardrums with my circle of life, Dodsonenya, singing. I couldn't help myself. The music overtook me, and I just, I had to, but I gave you no warning. It probably hurt. I'm sorry. It even caught me off guard, and I feel like I knew that it was going to happen, so I can only imagine how everyone else feels. Um... (laughs) My apology this week is for mentioning the fact that little boots and tiny arms give Lish a lot of fear and anxiety and then giving absolutely no context after raising those concerns. And guess what, folks? I'm not giving you any more context now either. And that I will not apologize for. Ugh, those little boots and tiny arms. But curbs. What? That's not what we talked about. You were supposed to apologize for bringing up Gaston and freaking out about Gaston again. Mm. Every podcast, this is not the Gaston show, okay? Just get it together. I mean, I think it should be. I'm not going to apologize for that. That brought me such joy, and I think it brought others joy too, so no apologies here. I will probably keep doing it. Also, you should have apologized for not having sources. Like, did you do anything for this podcast? Here's some of mine. Um, I listened to another podcast by the Animation Guild on the history of Michael Giamo, an article that I found super interesting, Disney History 101, again, about Michael Giamo going through some animation art history stuff, which was really great. And another article that I found, Making History, the 25th Anniversary of Disney's Pocahontas. And didn't you watch the Pocahontas making of? That wasn't included on the list here? It was um, not great. I can't say that I used anything from there. So don't watch it, folks. It's not very good. Okay. Well, I mean, one of those resources you just listed weren't even that good. So I don't know why you're coming for me quite so hard. But if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I still have the tried and true, you know, tested, beloved, The Art of Walt Disney by Christopher Finch. And when you have a resource that's that chock full of knowledge, you don't Mm. need to go looking very far. You know, I can learn quite a bit from that one book, so don't give me too much trouble. Also, I wanted to mention that a lot of the resources that were very impactful for you and I about the impact of this film is something that I did find for you and now for all of our listeners as well. 
So if anything that we talked about today in terms of the social and cultural impacts of the film were of interest to you, we will be sharing on Instagram later this week a list of some of those really informative sources so that you too can get educated on the impact this film had on Indigenous peoples. All right, all right. I guess you did some work for this. Thank you. Apology accepted. And if you're looking for more shenanigans like these, make sure to subscribe to the Scenario D podcast wherever you love to listen. And as I already mentioned, you can catch us on Instagram at Scenario D Podcast. You are going to love all the magic we're making there.